This is the Edify Podcast for the Servant. John Stott said Scripture is the royal scepter by which King Jesus rules his church. So let's talk about the link between structure and story when it comes to this 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 royal scepter. The Word of God is the greatest story that has ever been told and that ever will be told um, because of its eternal value. And if I had a button for an amen chant, I would press it then and there. Uh, but but the greatness of this story, it, it transcends all other stories in every single way, not only because it's eternal, it has an eternal truth and, it, and an eternal saving truth, but it's a story about God, who is the greatest person, and it is written by God, which is the greatest author. No other book can lay claim to being God's book besides what we have in the 66 books. So think about it for a moment, the story of Scripture. And, and this is something that we need to have in our minds as we're preaching in what it is that we're actually heralding and what we are about. Uh, what a wonder to read about the greatest king pursuing the greatest cause, which is the glory of the Lord filling the earth, vanquishing the greatest enemies, Satan, sin, death, with the greatest weapon, the Word of God. So you have the greatest author. Uh, it's a story about the greatest person. It's a it's a greatest king fighting the greatest cause, killing the greatest enemies with the greatest weapon. So that's what we do. That's what we tell over and over. And there's a structure. There's a story to what it is that we're actually doing. So listen to that 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 the word of god does double duty in that description the word of god is the story but it also plays a key part within the story that it tells and and in this episode i want to analyze and probably a few more i want to analyze the relationship between the structure of scripture and the story of scripture and so uh so let's let's dive into the structure of scripture the first thing we need to note is the difference between the ordering of the Hebrew Bible and that of the English Bible uh, in regards to the Old Testament. In our English Bible, the Old Testament has 39 books. Uh, it's organized uh, loosely, maybe in a loosely topical way, law, history, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, okay, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That's the, that's the book breakdown. The Hebrew Bible has three main divisions and and you see this made mention of in the new testament the law the prophets the writings okay and both the english and the hebrew arrangements are helpful it helps us to understand it helps us to see uh some clarity of what um original intent was and what uh, what providence has to play in in that arrangement but there there's a renewed interest in the reading of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew ordering and it's and it's neat to consider it's not a means of a matter of salvation it's not how they're how they're you know placed in canon but but it's just interesting and and I don't think that the sufficiency or, uh, of clarity or maybe or, uh, or or clarity of scripture is a stake in terms of of which arrangement we use um which one's better, which one's right, which one's perfect, you know, that's, you know, that's that's not what this episode is about. But I do believe that the Hebrew or ordering of the Old Testament is more helpful in tracing the storyline of the Scriptures because, you know, we can better 
we can better follow the interplay between the narrative and the commentary sections. And, and, and um, you know, I, I just think that that's helpful. You know, it's kind of like reading a a, a, a chronological Bible. That, that has benefit. It, it shows you some things. It helps you with the overall story. It shows you the picture. It helps you put things together. It's It shows you how it all was glued together, you know, in regards to places and kings and times and so on. In terms of form, Scripture has both narrative and commentary. The Scriptures have six narrative installments, which is the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It has the former prophets, Joshua through the kings. It has the writings, which is Ruth through Chronicles. And it has the Gospels, Matthew through John, Acts, and then Revelation. So the Bible has three sections of commentary on the story. The first one is prophetic commentary, Isaiah uh, through the book of the Twelve. Uh, number two is the poetic commentary, which is Psalms and Lamentations. Uh, and then the third is the apostolic commentary, which is Romans through Jude. So just by way of analogy, one could helpfully compare the form of Scripture to a sports cast. One person does does play-by-play, while another person gives color commentary. They're the filler. Okay? Think, think of the narrative section as the play-by-play and the commentary sections as the supporting color commentary. So in other words, the structure of Scripture and the story of Scripture are intertwined. Scripture's form uh, creates clear contours for the context. There you go. Clear contours for the context. That, that, that's the, the content of Scripture's story. So let's, let's kind of examine uh, the relationship between the structure of Scripture and the story of Scripture. And maybe a let's let's wrap this episode up in the next ten minutes in in a in a in a seven step summary. So let's give a seven step bare bones summary of the story uh, in this episode. Number one, the first two narratives, which is Genesis through Kings. This is a divine narration that's the play by play. Okay, where it's it's football season, go dogs. Um, anything else is heathen. So we understand play-by-play in the sports world. Um, The divine narration begins with a play-by-play of the drama spanning the creation of all the things in Genesis to the arrival of Israel on the brink of God's land of promise in Deuteronomy. Okay, that's covering the Pentateuch. The second installment of the story stretches from Joshua through the kings, which is what's considered the former prophets. The play-by-play opens with Israel's entrance into the promised land, and it ends with Israel's exile from the promised land. Israel's disobedience makes her like the nations that she has dispossessed. So, God begins his holy war against the, the sinful nations in the book of Joshua. But in the end, the holy war concludes in kings with God's judgment against the rebel nation of Israel the seed of the serpent and its anti-God city, quote, Babel, Babylon, um, appear to defeat the seed of woman and its city, Jerusalem. But but do they defeat the true seed and the true city? Okay, that's that's the first two narratives, Genesis through Kings. The second is the prophetic commentary. This is Isaiah through the book of the Twelve. The, the voice of the color commentary now comes to the forefront with the first installment of the commentary. Okay, this is the filler. The prophetic books expound upon the narrative. Uh, Isaiah 
through uh, so-called minor prophets. And the reason they're called minor prophets is because they're smaller. They have they have less pages to their work. Major prophets, big books. But the minor prophets, it's just a smaller book. So this this commentary, um, what it does is it, is it highlights how Israel's exile uh, comes as a consequence of breaking the covenant with God. Okay, that the Mosaic covenant that was established at the at the in the narrative of the Pentateuch, the play by play. Okay, the prophets stress a new work of God that will succeed where the old has failed. And, and it's not that the word of God failed, but the people failed the word of God. Okay, and Paul talks about that to the church at Rome. So in other words, the real Jerusalem is actually never defeated. The real Jerusalem uh, is the one that will always reign. There's always a remnant. There's always faithfulness. And those are those who are kept by God through their submission to his will. Okay, The Jerusalem that falls is just a model of the real thing. Okay. Much like marriage, marriage is a model of Christ and the church and how that is supposed to be. And marriage is a constant reminder of grace and relationship and covenant and promise and intimacy and joy and shared experience and all these sorts of things that we have with Christ. So these events are going to come into being because God will make a new covenant, which is in contrast to the former covenant. The first covenant you need to do these things in order to be holy, okay? Jesus, in the New Testament, has made us holy uh, in his blood, in his sacrifice, in his perfected work. Therefore, we are to act holy. So the roles are reversed. In the Old Testament, you obey in order to be holy. You yourself are sinful. You yourself are a sinner. You you cannot do anything of worth and merit, and it will never save you. So anything of good that you do now is you're being put on your tab. It's it's saved in prospect to the cross. Uh, Jesus put up with a whole lot of ignorance, or, or the Lord did. He put up with a whole lot of uh, um, uh, polygamy. He put up with a whole lot of this and a whole lot of that uh, because he knew what was to come would 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 solve this problem, would, would cleanse this problem. There was a whole lot of ignorance in the Old Testament, and Paul said in Acts 17, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, meaning that he, he was patient with, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day, a specific day, in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Okay, that's according to his son's work. Now, that's that's the that's the, the hermeneutic of the Old Testament, that that they were to obey in order to be holy. Okay, the hermeneutic of the New Testament, if you will, the way that you should read your New Testament is that we are now made cleansed, made holy, perfected in Christ. Therefore, we obey. Okay, that's that's how that's supposed to look. The roles have flopped. The roles are reverse. We don't obey because God loves us uh, or, or, or excuse me. We don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because God loves us. So this. These events come into being in the Old Testament. Let's get back to this. Uh, God is making this new covenant. Okay, that's that's this that's what the prophetic commentary is about. The Messiah, uh, he 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 will be the real king. He will be the real seed. He will have the real work. He will have the real kingdom, and his throne is never going to be overthrown. His city, the New Jerusalem, it's not going to be leveled to the ground. It didn't die in AD seventy. This this new this new creation he brings will forever endure. 
So, number three is the poetic commentary. This is the second installment of color commentary on the narrative. Uh, and so it's kind of like when you watch uh, NFL Network on Sunday nights or, or Monday or on Thursday or whatever it is, and there's Booger McFarlane on the sideline. <laughs> and he says, he says something like, you know, had they had they ran three more yards, they would have had the first down. But the fact that they did not run the three more yards is is uh, is evident, and therefore it is fourth down. Back to you in the booth, okay? <laughs> His color commentary is pitiful. It's pitiful and it's comical, but it's but it's booger. It's booger. So we all love him, you know. That's that's color commentary. Number three, poetic commentary. This is the second installment of the color commentary on the narrative. Um, that that comes next in poetic form and the first part of what is often called the writings okay this is the psalms through lamentations and i realize this is kind of heavy but but it helps us understand the a great grasp of the picture um the first part of what often is called the writings which is the psalms through the lament the lamentations of jeremiah okay this takes a reader in the poetic reflections of the sting of suffering and exile and the renewed hope that can come only with the wise and powerful king like David ruling on David's throne. So that's the poetic. Number four is the narrative three, which is Ezra through Chronicles. This is a third installment of the narrative, and then then it takes the readers through uh, Israel's return from exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is the play-by-play, okay? Uh, and the temple, the, the divine narration skillfully shows that this return from exile pales in comparison to the new exodus and return from exile uh, promised in the prophets. So the narrative then goes through a second telling of Israel's history in Chronicles. Chronicles shifts all the attention to hope found in the line of David and sets the stage for another return from exile by ending with the decree of Cyrus is that Israel will return. Now, number five, the narratives four and five, which is the Gospels and the Acts. And, and this decree finds its fulfillment in the Gospels. This fourth installment of the narrative tells the stunning story of how the Word of God took on flesh with the coming of God's Son. Jesus is proclaiming and purchasing the new Exodus, the redemption for God's people as the Lamb of God. This redemption is accomplished through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus re reconstituted the nucleus of the new Israel by calling the 12 disciples in the beginning of the Gospels. And at the end of the story, he commissions them to bring his purchase of redemption to all families of all the nations. And the Gospels close with the promise to empower them to fulfill this mission. So the fifth installment of the narrative in the book of Acts highlights the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of the empowerment, uh, empowerment for mission. It's often called the Acts of the Apostles, but it should be titled Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Okay, Jesus is raised. He's ascended. He's seated at, on high on, quote, David's throne in the heavenly Jerusalem. It's early. Let me swig my coffee. Jesus leads the disciples to choose a replacement for Judas to bring the number of disciples back to 12, these apostles. The day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Peter says that Jesus 
pouring out of the Spirit is proof that he has ascended, reigning above. Remember that Jesus said, uh, John 14, 15, 16, 17, really, uh, where he was leaving, he said, it's needful for me to go away so that the paraclete, the one who will call beside you, uh, should come, the comforter, okay? And he's going to come. And when he came, that signified Jesus is no longer here, and therefore the Holy Spirit has continued to be here. Now the ways in which he operates has changed because we have the complete revealed will of God, but the Holy Spirit is still doing his work. He's still doing his business through the medium agency, not of man, but of the complete perfected will and word of God. Okay. That's, that's the picture. P Peter says that Jesus Pouring out of that spirit is proof that he has ascended, writing above, Acts 2.33. The disciples are clothed with power from on high so that they can function as Jesus' witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, Acts 1-7, through 7, then in Judea and Samaria, Acts 8-12, through 12, then to the ends of the earth, which is 13-28. through 28. Insert the Apostle Paul. Acts functions in the canon as a new conquest narrative after the pattern of Joshua. This, this time, the conquest of the nation comes by the word of God or the sword of the spirit, not the physical sword of Joshua. The disciples do not bring bloodshed upon humanity because their message is that the blood has already been shed for the redemption of the nations. Jesus has suffered rejection and death to accomplish the redemption that he spoke about in the gospel accounts. He did his disciples suffer similarly in Acts so that this redemption may be applied to the nations by the power of the Holy Spirit. The sixth installment is the apostolic commentary. Okay. This is, this is the, the third installment of the commentary. Um, and this is, this is Paul, James, Peter, John, and Jude. Okay. The epistles interpret the significance of what Jesus accomplished in the Gospels. They comment on the already and not yet nature of redemption. Okay? In other words, the, the apostles show that when Christ first came, he brought keys and a key aspect of redemption to bear that, that are already displayed in the church. Forgiveness of sins, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the not yet of redemption will come at Christ's second coming for the Jerusalem above. Okay, that's that's the the church eagerly awaits and and an ever and maybe an even greater experience of full redemption from sins. Okay, redeemed bodies, Revelation twenty one, the new heavens and the new earth, where where they will come down and the all of heaven will come down and we and we will go up and there will be forever with the Lord. Okay. The apostles give authoritative guidance as representatives of the risen Christ. They sharpen the focus of the church's mission as he lives in the, or as she as the church, lives in the overlap of the ages um, and stands in the gap as the kingdom of God, the, the reign of God, in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Number seven, finally, in this exhaustive list, is the revelation. This this revelation has caused so much stink between um, theologians alike in all sorts of circles. Even even within our own circle, the Brotherhood of Christ, it's you know it's people have numerous different interpretations, as they would call it, uh, ways to look at it, ways to decipher it, taking. 
pictures of the Old Testament, calling this, uh, you know, calling this, uh, uh, this, these allegories and these words and these metaphors and uh, the this, um, um, you know, take the first four chapters literal, but the the rest of them not so much. Some of them you should, some of them you shouldn't, you know, and all this stuff is our archetypal. This is the narrative, the sixth, the sixth narrative, which is Revelation. This is a final installment of redemption that comes in this book. The Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are finally going to vanquish the false trinity, which is Satan and the beast and the false prophet. Uh, the archetypal anti-God city of Babylon is back, but it's going to be destroyed by the forces of true of the true city, the Jerusalem above, of heaven. You know, um, once these forces have been dispatched, the victory over Babylon is complete then the heavenly city will will finally be unveiled. Uh, the tree of life found in the beginning of the story of Genesis comes back into the picture in the, in the final chapters of Revelation. All the redeemed will finally see God face to face. There's no more, no more cursing and crying and dying. The endless ages in the new heaven and the new earth and the new story will be written um, in which every chapter is better than the last, okay? That's just an overall picture of what Revelation entails. If you could put Revelation, if you could reword Revelation or re retitle the Revelation, it would be victory. And it tells the story of victory. And some folks squabble over, okay, is this future victory or is this victory that we now have? Is this a, is this a picture of of what is to come or what or what has already been done? And and this goes back and forth. And there's some parts of this that that is that is yet to be revealed and there are some parts of this that have already been done uh depending on how you read your timeline in history and, and parse it up together here's the truth revelation can be understood um because the because revelation chapter one blessed to see who hears and does and understands the will of god in this revelation okay within the first chapter it says you can understand it now the impact of it and the the timeline of it uh, can go back and forth, and who's the man of sin, and what's what's this, and what's this, and what's that, and what does this signify, and what is this? Keep in mind, Revelation was written to a first-century world that understood this language and the times in which they lived. And some folks will say, okay, well, this this is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. And some would say, uh, no, this is written in the 90s, and this is all about the second coming of Christ. So e even that goes back and forth. And here's the reality. We will not be saved or lost because we do not understand the timeline of the sixth narrative, okay? What happens and when it happens and, and all of these things. I, here's here's what I will say. We will be lost if we believe something in Revelation that is contradictory to uh, what we find in the, in the rest of the New Testament. Scripture never contradicts. If you if you have a position concerning the, new, the uh, revelation of God, uh, as it is in the book, and you and you think that well, there's nothing that this nothing of my position uh, contradicts anything in the New Testament. Well, great, great. Uh, my my understanding of what Revelation is and uh, how it fits in the timeline may be completely different to yours, and yet it itself does not contradict what happens in the rest of the New Testament or means of of saving grace and in whatever. And here's the here here's what we need to hear. That's okay. That's okay. I don't have to have your view of the timeline of Revelation in order to be saved. 
I, I do not have to uh, villainize you for uh, not thinking that revelation happens in this sequential order in the way in which I think that it does, okay? We are forever students. We are. And the way I feel today, I have the right to change my mind in 12 years from now, okay? And so do you. And so we should give grace to each other. And when we when we study books that are hard or, or topics that are hard or things that, that you know what? We, we both believe in our Lord Jesus and we both have been baptized in into his blood by the and receive forgiveness of his sins. We've been added to his one body. And therefore, everything that comes next is a pursuit of this perfected knowledge. Okay, we're always going to be on that. We're always going to be in pursuit of that. So we, we, need, to, we need to give each other grace when it comes to uh, the sixth narrative and, and understand that we may not understand everything about it, but here's the essential message. Victory for those who are in Christ. That's all that matters. That's all that truly, sincerely matters. The, everything that I should take from that is that we have victory in Christ and that there is something better for us uh, than anything that we have ever known before in this physical life. Now, today's episode was lengthy, but I wanted to get a, a good grasp of the whole story and, and the whole form of Scripture and, and, and how we uh, see this and how we align this and how the Hebrews see it. And what benefit is that of us? And what should we know about that? Listen, we have the greatest story. It's about the greatest person. The greatest person wrote it. Uh, the greatest king, the greatest cause, the greatest victory. So it is the greatest story ever told. And so don't, don't lose. As I was saying, don't lose heart uh, over what you're doing. You, you have the story that will save uh, this whole world. Listen. We will dine in the halls of heaven together because of people like you who stand up and tell the greatest story ever told. So may God bless you in the telling of this greatest story.